Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast, the Tomorrow, Tomorrow edition, as we get you set for the start of training camp, which gets underway on Saturday at 2.30 at Dayton's Welcome Stadium. Coming up, we'll hear from Joe Mixon, who talked to reporters on Friday about the Bengals' new offense under Zach Taylor. And let me put it this way, after listening to Mixon, you'll want to draft him for your fantasy team. I'll talk to my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham, about the big questions going into training camp. And Lap will also reminisce about what training camp was like under the legendary Paul Brown. And in this week's Fun Facts conversation, you'll get to know new offensive coordinator Brian Callahan. He'll tell us what it was like as a player to be part of the longest winning streak in high school football history, and he'll tell us why he never wears the Super Bowl ring he won as an assistant coach with the Denver Broncos. Those conversations are straight ahead, but first, here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest invention since Game of Thrones episode recaps. So I'm just a little bit late to the party. My wife and I are finally watching Game of Thrones. We're on season three, and I'm pretty sure I would be missing a ton if not for the episode recaps available online. So, if you didn't watch GOT and decide to finally take the plunge, don't worry if it seems confusing. The episode recaps will save the day. Now time for football. By any reasonable measure, Joe Mixon had a sensational second year in the NFL. He led the AFC in rushing despite missing two games, added 43 receptions, and scored nine touchdowns. But as he visited with reporters in front of his locker on Friday, Joe made it clear that he expects to have Todd Gurley-like numbers now that the Bengals are basically running the Rams' offense. What's that mean? Well, over the last two years, between rushing and receiving, Gurley averaged 1,962 yards and 20 touchdowns. Here's the Q&A with Mixon, who turned 23 this week. Do you think the so-called experts have uh, kind of, you know, I mean, have kind of overlooked the talent on this on this team overall? Um, I mean, they, I mean, they always do. They do that from even when I was in college or high school. They always did that to the Bengals. I mean, at the end of the day, like I said, I'm not worried about it. When I go out there, and when people got to line up against me, they gonna know. They gonna know who I am. You know what I'm saying? So, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about no ranking. At the end of the day, real football players, real football fans, owners, whatever the case may be, they know. They know what I could do. So I'm not worried about. You know what I'm saying? No preseason ranking or how they rank whoever. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all opinionated anyway. You ask any back in the league, I'm sure there's about 15 backs that'd be like, "Oh, I'm number one." I'm number one. I mean, at the end of the day, we all felt like that. But at the same time, when you go look into skill set and what they could do for the team, I mean, it's the proof is in the pudding. I could do it. I do it all. That's just what I do. But like I said, I just got I got to be that much better than everybody. So that's what I'm gonna do. How is this team different? Do you think? Uh, how, how is this locker room I mean, different? Um, really, the the scheme schematically. You know how Coach Taylor he come in and you know the. Like I said, the offense is 
the way he got it set up is it's, it's crazy. It's night and day from what everybody have seen in these past years between the Bengals or old Bengals or whatever the case may be. But, you know, Coach Taylor, he got it to where um, it's, it's going to be a nightmare for the defense. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I, like I said, I look forward to it. And, you know, everybody going to take it upon themselves to be the best them in this offense. And, you know, you can count on, you know what I'm saying, the people and the leaders that's out there to go deliver. Like I said, I can't wait. I mean. Sounds like they're going to run it. I mean, if that's what they're going to do, we're going to do it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I, I mean, I just got to be in shape. I got to be ready to put on. I got to be ready to do all of that. Like I say, I, I, I take it upon me. I take it upon myself, you know what I'm saying, to be able to do these things and do it at a high level. And that's what I'm going to do. I don't care what, you know what I'm saying, nobody going to say he this, he that. So what? I, I mean, I could do it. <laughs> that's just what I do. This is your third year. Yeah. You're obviously a focal point of this offense. Do you? Do you start thinking about leadership and, and maybe taking that next step in, in that regard? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I know I know I'm a I know I'm a vocal leader and I know I'm a lead by example. I mean, everybody on the offense, even on the defense, know that. Coaches know that. Um, you know, it might not be, you know, where I'm. They put me out at the captain or something, but at the same time, they know they know who to lean on. They know who to go to when they need when they need that talking to. I'm gonna talk to them. I'm gonna get them ready. I say I, I take that upon myself. I don't care like, you know, I'm a third year player and this, this and that. I mean, that's just what I've always done. I didn't did that year in, year out. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, they and they respect it because, you know, I'm doing, you know, what I'm saying you know, I'm tell, I'm doing what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? So at the end of the day, I just gotta go out there and, you know, like I say, leave by example. And if it's to do whatever I can, you know, being vocal, then I'll do that too. But you know, for the most part, you know, go out there, lead by example, and then everybody else is going to follow. If somebody's slacking, that's when we go go ahead and pick them up. How would you describe A.J. Green as a leader? A.J. Green, he's a he's a, a leader by example. You know, A.J., he don't he don't talk too much. You know what I'm saying? He, if, if, it's, if it's like a big game or something, then, and, you know, he feeling, you know, emotional, he might say a couple words, but at the same time, you know, he's going to go out there and lead by example. He don't need to say too much. You know what you're going to get out of A.J. You know what I'm saying? So... You know me. I feel like I could do. I could do the balance. If you need me to be a vocal leader, I'm gonna do that. You know we're gonna always lead by example. But at the end of the day, you need me to be vocal. I could do that. But you know, every like I said, everybody know. You know who the real. You know what I'm saying captains or who to who to lean on on the team, and that's just what it is. And you know, like I said, you can take that upon ourselves. I always been like that, and I'm gonna always be like that. So. Ain't nothing gonna change. I saw you clowning with him when we were talking to him a little bit ago. He didn't break. Is, is there another guy in this locker room that could say stone face like that? Uh, probably Geno Atkins. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, it's not too many people that you know go. You know they'd probably break. I think they'd break. But you know, like I said, you the AJ you see right there. That's the AJ you feel me. You see behind closed doors. I mean, at the end of the day, you know he a real down to earth dude. I never met. An NFL player that at uh, that caliber level, that is that down to earth and humble as AJ Green. I mean, I I didn't met a lot of them, and the, just the way he goes about himself, being professional, and you know, even the way he just like he having fun. You know, it might not be everybody else loud having fun type of stuff. I mean, that's just not AJ. I mean, at the end of the day, like I say, he's the most professional. Uh, down-to-earth guy, on, like I said, on that caliber level that you could tell that haven't changed one bit. And, you know, I always respected that out of AJ um, since day one.
And, you know, I'm sure, I mean, he in his, what, ninth, ten year or something like that. And he, you know, like I said, the way he handles himself and the way he goes about things, I mean, you know, hopefully I could be able to show one day of a younger guy, you know, be like, okay, Joe, is he one of the humblest dudes, you know, that I've ever met? Like I said, I feel that way about AJ, and I'm sure a lot of people do. But, I mean, just like I said, the caliber level that AJ is on, you know, he Hall of Fame bound, and, you know, a lot of people, they be, you know, big-headed and all of that. AJ is super down to earth, most humble dude that I've ever met. And I'll take that, you know what I'm saying, to the grave with me. I mean, he just is. You've talked about trying to take another step forward this year, led the league in rushing last year. In your own mind, were you good last year? Were you great? Were you okay? How did you feel? Um, I think I think I did a good job. Uh, at the end of the day, the linemen, you know, that's that's really who, who created it. You know what I'm saying? The receivers blocking downfield, all of them dudes, they play a part of it. Um, at the end of the day, I could have did a, a whole hell of a lot better. I mean, everybody think he was that good that year. But at the same time, I left a lot of yards on the field. Um, you might not think so because I had a lot, but at the same time, it's a lot more other yards that, you know, was there that I could have got, but – I mean, it's just little things that plays a part of it. I mean, at the end of the day, like I said, this year I'm going to put myself on that, that, that pedestal to where I just got to be that much better, you know, than everybody else. I mean, that's just what I'm going to do. You know, with the offense we got and the players around us and the coaches around us, they're going to get us in that position to be able to do that. So, uh, like I said, it's, it's a lot in store for us. Just got to go out there, you know, when the time comes and deliver. I mean, that's all it is to it, man. Ain't really nothing else. That's all it is to it. You seem like you're bubbling with excitement and the opportunity to play in this offense. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, if you were to see the, the, the opportunity that a certain individual can do on the offense and it's not being a quarterback, you'd be like, okay, like, man, like, hopefully I could be able to do that. You know what I'm saying? And the film, I mean, the film speaks for itself. You see the Rams running wild all day like and we got that same offense and I mean I will I will think we have better players than them you know what I'm saying so at least offensive weapons and like I said I, I will think that we could do the same stuff if not more than they can has anybody pulled you aside and said look we're gonna be we're gonna focus on the run or? um I mean at the end of the day the, our offense of what we run it's the run starts first and by the run starting first it set up the play actions and it set up the jet sweeps. It set up the, the shots down the field. At the end of the day, if our run is going, then our pass would be on two. And, you know, by our pass and our run being on at the same time, you got to play the defense honest. If you ain't honest on defense, if the defense not playing honest, then at the end of the day, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing on offense. And I feel like, you know, you know me being a back that I am and capable of being – and uh, the receivers that we have with A.J., you know, on the outside and Tyler in the slot, you know what I'm saying, you got John on the outside, Cody on the outside, them boys, they're going to be able to spread, you know, the, the ball around. And you got to play it honest. If you don't play it honest, then you're just going to have to pick, take a, you're going to have to take your choice, your chance of stopping the pass, getting extra DBs or extra big guys for the run. And at the end of the day, our offense should be so good, we could beat whatever defense out there, no matter what personnel they're running. And, you know, like I said, we, we just got to do whatever we can, man, to put ourselves in position to, to excel in that level. Um, but, I mean, it, it'll, it'll come and, you know, it's, it's in due time. I mean, it's, it's only so much we can say right now, but 
you know, when when them, when them games start to come on, we, we'll be there. Before you ever even heard the name Zach Taylor, did you watch the Rams the last two years and go, man, why can't anybody stop these guys? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, when you see Todd Gurley doing the things that he's done in that offense, you'd be like, what, like, what the hell do they got going on? Like, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, when, when you get Coach Taylor uh, bringing in that offense and, you know, doing those things and the stuff that Todd did and the stuff that I know that I could be able to do the same thing, you know, if not more, then, I mean, who wouldn't be excited? You know what I'm saying? Todd is a great player, like a great running back. Like, it ain't it ain't no – not like I would say, it's, you get one Todd – Decades. It takes one like like decades to get one Todd Gurley. You know what I'm saying? Todd is a special player in the league. You know what I'm saying? But at the same time, when 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 we get that opportunity and you see what he could do, and Coach Taylor bringing in that same thing, I mean, who wouldn't get excited? Who yeah, wouldn't? Three hundred touches last year. Do you feel like you're going to get the same amount? I mean, I I mean, at the end of the day, only time will tell. Yeah. I mean, you never know how the game goes and things like that. But at the same time. I feel like whatever touches that I get, I'm gonna be able to, you know, put on no matter what, if it's in the pass or in the run. So, like I said, I just gotta be in physical shape, and uh, you know, just to be able to take on that role and that that pounding of uh, getting the rock. And you know, like I said, I, I feel like I'll be in great shape for it. And you know, I just gotta make sure when the time comes, just gotta be ready. That's it. Last year, Joe Mixon became just the second running back in team history to lead his conference in rushing. Do you know the other one? Not Corey Dillon, not Rudy Johnson, not James Brooks, and not Icky Woods. It was Paul Robinson who led the AFL in rushing in the Bengals' very first season. When the team opens training camp on Saturday, it will be Dave Lapham's 44th with the Bengals, 10 as a player, and 34 as a broadcaster. We began our training camp discussion with memories of his very first one. Lap, we are recording the day before training camp begins. In your playing days, were you excited today or were you dreading what was to come? <laughs> I guess it all depended on the year. You know, I remember, um, you know, my first training camp, you talk about, you know, not knowing anything from an environmental standpoint or expectations. I mean, it was all so new. And I can just remember, you know, going into the cafeteria, getting my food, sitting over in a corner by myself and just not saying boo to anybody. You know, it's like um, I took on the approach that rookies are um, <laughs> not to be seen or heard from, you know, in, unless you're invited into a group or whatever the case may be. So I do remember just, like, looking around and just trying to observe as many things as I could observe, try to absorb and sponge in as much of the, the new environment as possible and um, just – Man, don't don't uh, don't deviate. Keep your keep your nose to the grindstone. Um, if you have questions, don't be afraid to ask them. Obviously, and then you find out veterans that you can you can trust and guys that want to help you and all that sort of things. That rookie year, it's a it's a big adjustment. Even though you played at a you know a, a major college program and such, it's a different dynamic coming to the NFL. And I'll, I'll never forget the first uh, pregame talk. Paul Brown gets up there with his Benjamin Franklin glasses on and in his notes and um, addresses the team. And I'm thinking, man, this is, this is unbelievable. This guy's he's in the Hall, the Hall of Fame coach. You know, I can't believe I'm here. Go from Ben Schwartzwalder, Hall of Fame college coach, my senior year, to Paul Brown, Hall of Fame professional coach, my rookie in the NFL. And I thought, man, 
I am one lucky dude, you know, go from two, uh, one coach like that to another one. And they both had unbelievable respect for each other. Paul Brown really respected, you know, Ben Schwartzwalder because he got a lot of guys from Syracuse over the years between his Cleveland Brown and Cincinnati Bengal teams. And, of course, Ben Schwartzwalder thought, you know, the moon rose and the sun rose and set on Paul Brown for sure. When Paul would get up and do that beginning of camp speech that he was famous for, what did you think? You know, I, I, I thought that um, he was he was no nonsense. Um, you know, he's very accomplished orator. You know, he had a, he had a, a very strong message, and uh, and he gave the same message every year, the same speech. So, you know, the veteran guys were all bored by it, and I'm like on every word. I was like mesmerized, mm-hmm. and um, you know, he he covered a lot of things and. Um, I just looking at him, I thought, you know, this guy is uh, he's impressive. And and then the more I got to know him as a rookie player, I, it was like, you know, I think if he got into politics, he would have been president. I think if he got into business, he would have run P and G. You know, he's just that kind of guy. Um, just unbelievably intelligent. You know, ahead of the game, all the things that he that he invented, including the face mask and all, so many things that are taken for granted today. Paul Brown was the originator, and um, so he just was. And the thing that impressed me too is his organizational ability when he got out of uh, the coaching part of it. Even as a coach, he'd hire an assistant coach that he felt like he could trust, and and then let him do his job. He let him do his work, and if you didn't do it, he'd move on from you. But you get an opportunity to to do it and, and do it well. Um, so I think his organizational ability, his ability to judge people and put them in positions to succeed and surround them uh, with methodology and ways to succeed. He he was a brilliant guy, very brilliant. Zach Taylor's first training camp as the Bengals head coach is going to look a lot different from what you experienced as an NFL player. The practices will be two hours, no two-a-days, no Oklahoma drill, no half-line drill. What do you think? Paul Brown was like that. Paul was, um, I mean, a two-hour practice was a long practice for Paul, but it was very quick tempo, and uh, um, his belief was you're not on your own schedule. We're not going to beat you up. You did, you know, live. um, We had nine-on-seven run game. We had live pass rush and things like that, but uh, it wasn't – he didn't really scrimmage. At the end of practice, we'd we'd have a few plays of scrimmage, but nothing, you know, like a half-an-hour scrimmage or anything like that. Forrest Gregg, though, Man, his training camps were, I mean, they were they were tough. They would challenge you mentally, physically, every way they could challenge you. But, you know, Forrest had the credibility of Lombardi asked him to at least do what he's asking us to do, maybe more. So he did it. He's not asking us to do anything he didn't do. He's still alive and walking and ticking. So let's let's see what we, we can get done. But, I mean, the conditioning part of it in full pads, the uh, up-downs, you know, the famous grass drills, run in place, hit the ground. You know, have to hit it on your belly, bounce up. And, uh, you know, we do sets of 30, like three sets of 30 of them, and it's like your tongue's dragging at that point. And then practice hasn't even started yet. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh. And they were very physical. And I remember um, <laughs> we had the goal line stand against us in Super Bowl 16 in the very first practice the following year uh, for training camp. We basically stretched, took a lap around the field, and blew his whistle and was a live goal line scrimmage. That'll never happen on my watch again. And it was like, got your neck shortened, you know, 15 minutes into training camp in the, in that 1982 season, that strike-shortened season. So that was, uh, that, was, that was interesting. He was, his training camps were by far 
the most physical that I most physical thing I'd ever been through in my life. Mm-hmm. Football, non football, whatever. You'd be two inches taller if not for Forrest's <laughs> training camps. In your mind, is there a fine line between how hard you need to work to be ready to play NFL football and keeping guys fresh and healthy? Yeah, and, it, and it's so different now because back then, you know, we'd have one mandatory camp uh, in the off season, and I mean, I had an off season job. Most guys had an off season job. It was, you know, you, you weren't making the money that football makes today, and uh, you know. Plus the fact that I wanted to try to prepare myself for life after football because it could have been at any season. So I wanted to do things to eliminate vocations, if nothing else, and get experience and exposure in uh, different things. And I had like, you know, six or seven different off-season jobs, um, te- from teaching to, you know, selling chemicals, selling uh, adhesives, um, working at a, a savings and loan, all, all kinds of different jobs. Uh, you know, just to see what I might like and not like. And um, so guys, I mean, I work out in my lunch period, and I'd come in earlier in the morning so I could take an hour and a half lunch and go lift, go down to spinning field, lift, do my run and all that sort of thing, then come back and work in the afternoon. Um, So it it wasn't – now it's a year-round thing. I mean, their conditioning, as we know, you know, all year round, and um, they have the OTAs and the mandatory mini camps and all those sort of things. So it's it's – guys don't really get out of shape as much as guys used to back in, in those years. And a lot of times guys would literally play themselves into shape at training camp. There would be my, my second year in the in the league uh, in 1975, we had a Hall of Fame game against the Redskins. So we had seven preseason games. <laughs> we had training camp for nine weeks. I mean, I, <laughs> I, uh, my son was born and, you know, didn't see him for two and a half months. You know, it was like, geez, this is crazy. But that that was that was the lifestyle of the NFL in those in those years. So training camps, I think they felt like they had to be a lot different. But when you look at it, guys would come into training camp not in very good shape at all, and they'd just beat them to death initially, and they'd wonder why they had pulled muscles and all these. And guys weren't ready for the level. A lot of guys weren't. Um, I never tried to let myself, you know, get that. I always felt like if I let myself get that badly out of shape going to lose your job, man. You know, it's a competitive world, not NFL, man. you got to keep yourself physically and mentally ready. But some guys would just, you know, take it for granted and show up and uh, early in camp have some kind of muscle pull that they shouldn't have really had. But so, but in, in, in like I can remember too, back then it would be 98 degrees with 100% humidity and one water break. Like back then you were soft if you drank water. And they give you salt tablets. You know, it's like, oh, this is, but it was just, it was like the reverse of what should have been. And I can remember just losing, literally, I remember one practice losing 16 pounds, wow. weighed in in the morning, weighed in out after the second practice was 16 pounds of water weight. Wow. Now, in lunch, you tried to make it up in between, but you couldn't, you know, make it up that fast. And you talk about, man, trying to just pound fluids and make sure you don't cramp to death, you know? Um, so, yeah, training camp was so different back then. It was crazy. Seven preseason games has to be the record. No team ever played more than seven preseason games, did it? No, I, I wouldn't think so, you know, because the Hall of Fame game was on a rotation. So, you know, you, you get that extra one, and it's like, and I'm thinking, I was only this, you know, my rookie year, this is my second year in the league, and I'm thinking, two years ago, we only played 11 games in the regular season in college. We're playing seven games that don't even count. I mean, none of them even mean a hill of beans, you know. 
And then, so we play seven that don't count, and then we play 14 that count. Crazy. All right, let's talk about the latest Bengals news, beginning with the return of Andre Smith. Do you figure, all right, there's your third tackle, or is there still a chance in your mind that the Bengals will be looking to make a deal or trying to find you know, the best available guy after cuts? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that um, uh, as an organization, they'll probably always continue that on a, on a daily basis. You're looking to improve your roster you know, from 1 to 53. Once you get that final 53-man roster, you're trying to improve it as much as you can. I think that they feel much better about where they are. I mean, because literally you had two tackles. How are you going to play preseason games? Are you going to, you're going to kick these guards out and, and, and have them play tackle for over a half, maybe three-quarters of a preseason game where some of them might not even obviously make the team and others it's like you're taking away reps that maybe they need to have more at guard and now you're kicking them out there at tackle. They may not even play it during the season. So you were just short bodies. So to get somebody in there to just uh, you know take reps like that, um, but there, there were other guys out there, you know, like guys like Perkins and guys like that that are going to get reps in the preseason games and, and try to hook on either here or other NFL teams. But um, I think, I think to have who could what could be your third tackle there from day one of training camp, taking reps with offensive linemen that will be making the football team, yeah, I think is is a plus. So I think that uh, to get that signing done when they did. I think before training camp even started, I think is a is a positive because there was, I mean it was you didn't have to be a football Einstein to realize, man, we got a hole there, you know, at that tackle spot, and um, as we've talked about before, you're going to find your five best linemen. If, if you've got a a guy that can play tackle, he can usually kick inside to play guard. So I mean, you're, you're going to find your five best offensive linemen. It's just who's going to be that third tackle and that uh, or that swing tackle that can play both right and left. For what it's worth, in shorts and a T-shirt at least, Andre appeared to be in decent shape. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think he's uh, I think he's been working it. And um, you know, this is his, you know he's in double digits uh, career now in the National Football League. So um, I think uh, not that he ever took anything for granted, but if he did, I don't think he does anymore. And I, I think he's um, he's got a, a career and a story that he can tell some of the younger guys. You know, maybe things to avoid, things to do. Um, you know, accentuate this, stay away from that, and, and uh, you'll, you'll have a successful NFL career. Plus the fact of having, you know, played in 100 games, over 90 of them here in his career with the Bengals, that he's, um, he's seen a lot. He's seen a lot of players. He's seen a lot of uh, defensive configurations. He's seen a lot of things that he can help, you know, young linemen with uh, advance their careers. News release came out on Friday morning that Billy Price begins the season on the non-football injury list. That's also the case for long snapper Clark Harris. Let's start with Billy Price. They're not saying much about whatever the injury is, but they are saying it, it, it does not appear to be too serious. Yeah, I think it sounds like it's a precautionary thing, you know, as, as much as anything. I think they want to make sure that he's, that he's right, that he's 100% right um, before he starts to, you know, to take on the grind of, uh, of an NFL season. And honestly, Dan, the first, as we know, the first few days, they're not even in pads. I mean, they, they really they break them in easily. So it's almost like an extension of a mandatory minicamp at this stage. And I'm not saying, oh, yeah, you know, it's not important. You can skip it. But if you have to miss something, you know, I think that would be the stage where it would be um, the, the most 
you know, you could overcome it. I, I'm, I'm trying to say, I guess, it's the, the easiest rather than missing, you know, halfway into training camp or toward the end of training camp and then starting the regular season coming off of an injury that you've had to take some time off. So hopefully, you know, let it heal. And uh, like we're saying, hopefully it's not that significant. Hopefully let it heal up and then get right into it and uh, and get the pads on and, and start working with that, uh, with that offensive line that you're going to, be a very important integral part of making all the calls and, and directing traffic and all the responsibilities the center has. In Clark, Har- Clark Harris's case, with his track record and his experience, I assume that if he's healthy by September 1st, it, it doesn't even matter how much practice time he gets in, he'll be fine as your long snapper. Yeah, they, they signed Dan Godsell as a long snapper, and I'm thinking, you know, why Why do we have to have two long snappers at training camp? It's not really that that necessary, that essential. I mean, every team has a backup deep snapper, long snapper, but you don't you don't usually necessarily have, particularly in Clark's case where he hasn't had a misexecution in his career here, knock on wood, uh, with the Bengals. So, um, you know, he had been in a recent Pro Bowl, but now obviously it makes sense with him a little bit nicked up and on the uh, on the injury list at this point in time. I want to talk to you about the offensive line because I was listening to another podcast a week or two ago specifically on offensive line play, and the person doing it talked about how the Rams' offense will make the Bengals' offensive line look better even if the individual players aren't better. In other words, it's an offensive line-friendly scheme. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's been my uh, thought in, about it as well. Um, and I can speak from experience. When your running game is going well, and the running game has to go well, or it doesn't, you know, your, your play-action passing game isn't going to work. You do have to have the threat of the run. If you're getting your run stuffed, uh, the play-action pass, you're going to find yourself in down-and-distance situations where it's tough to play-action pass, and you're going to have to drop back and pass and protect the quarterback. But if you're able to uh, create positive plays with your play-action stuff, pulling linemen and you know cross-blocking and doing some of the things that, that you do with this uh, – in this particular offense, a lot of movement, a lot of formation movement. Um, multiple things happen. Defensive linemen, they have to come off the football, respect the run, so they choke it down a little bit or even come to a stop if they're really fooled by it, and, and then they have to restart or else reaccelerate if they don't come to a complete stop. That gives you an edge as, a, as an offensive lineman. Um, and, you know, not to mention what it does to the linebackers and the safeties with respect to potential big chunks down the field. And compound that with wide receivers on the edge. They come in and block in safeties. They're cracking on outside linebackers, whatever they're doing, running in the running game. They go with that same uh, movement, that same motion, same look to those guys. And so now you're playing it solid to play the run, and he runs right by you, and all of a sudden you get a, a chunk play down the football field. So, I mean, there are so many, so many benefits to it. And you don't have to be an outstanding pass protector in that type of scheme. Now, at some point in time, you know, you're going to have to – uh, protect the quarterback. He's going to take five, seven step drops where he's seven, nine yards deep in the pocket. And but if if rather than having to do that 50 times a game, where a defensive lineman knows where he is and he's just teeing off, you know, 50 straight times. This offense, with all the movement, formation movement, um, changing the launch point of the quarterback in and out of the pocket, moving the pocket, all of those kind of things that this offense is going to do, it's going to make it a lot easier. I think it's. I think it's. Offensive player friendly, is offensive line friendly, quarterback friendly, receiver friendly. Uh, I, I think I think it can be all those things, but you know as we've seen, New England Patriots figured it out. You know they they did a good job, uh, but that's that's that guy's 
the best to ever do it, Bill Belichick, in terms of scheming on the defensive side of the football. And then he has a great quarterback executing on the other side of it. But, I mean, they got to the Super Bowl running that offense. And this, this offense is going to be real interesting to watch, Dan, because, you know, it, it, there's going to be some Ram stuff, some West Coast stuff. You know, uh, all the guys in the staff have had different exposures to different offenses, and they're, three of them have played quarterback. They all have input. So it's going to be, uh, you know, a, a hybrid type of, uh, a, not a mishmash, but a hybrid type of maybe everything that they like about these offenses, put it all together and, and come up with something that could really create problems uh, from a matchup standpoint for defenses. It's going to be fun to watch, but I don't think you have to be you know, a, do, a dominant pass protector as an offensive lineman to have success in this in this uh, offense. You do have to be a pretty good run blocker, though, to have success. And we've talked about it before. I always harken back to the, the Houston Texans under Gary Kubiak when they were really lighting it up. I'd watch end zone tape, and it would be at the mesh point when the quarterback's, you know, is he going to hand it off or not to the running back in the play action fake. The offensive linemen are looking the exact same whether they're running it or the play-action pass. You know, they're not flying down the field, but they, they're doing their inside-outside zone-type schemes, and they're doing it aggressively, and it's like, man, is that a run? And even looking at the tight ends, the receivers, it's like, I mean, their footwork, everything's the exact same. I'm like, man, and guess, and it would literally be a guess in 50-50. It was like, seemed like half the time, damn, that's wrong. I thought they were. And, and even considering down and distance, a lot of times they do that play-action stuff on second and eight, second and nine, you think, oh, they probably – probably pass here, and they're going to run it. Third and four, they'd run it. You know, sometimes third and two, are they going to run it? Oh, it's a play-action pass. So if you get that running game going, you can be real contrarian, you know, in your play calling and really get the defense on their heels and put them in a, a guessing game. Then you get you got a leg up for sure. How much did that scheme help Andrew Whitworth maintain his status as being known as one of the best left tackles in the NFL in his late 30s? Yeah, I think, I think a lot. And uh, Sullivan, the center, that – um, you know, Sullivan and Whitworth were up there and advanced long in the tooth. And uh, I, I do think that, that um, you know, rather than just having Whit drop, you know, set up and pass protect 50 straight times, you know, or 50 times during the course of a game, you know, and pass protection and Sullivan doing the same thing, I think, you know, it makes, it might, makes life easier. There's no question about it. You know, it's um, any time anytime you can put an element of doubt in a defensive player's mind. This, this whole game is about confidence, you know, playing with confidence. If you, if you think you know exactly, you know, you know you know exactly what to do and you think your opponent doesn't really know what to do, man, you feel like you're Superman at that point, you know. And it, it is. It's all about putting an element of doubt. That's why, you know, the defensive side of it, if, if you're out there, whatever position it is, and it's like, man, you know, I'm not sure about this. What if he does this? What if he does that? You're done. You're beaten. You're beaten before you even even the snap of the football. But if you line up and it's like, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I don't care what he does. I know by rules, my rules, I know what I'm supposed to do if he does this. I know what I'm supposed to do if he does that. I'm going to go kick his tail. And, uh, you know, it, it, now you're playing fast. You're playing confidently. And last year we saw a Bengals defense that was playing in doubt. And a lot of times, I mean, sometimes guys are given cushion because they're not sure. You know, they're not supposed to give seven yards cushion. And as a coach, you like to be out there kicking them in the butt, pushing them back up close to the line of scrimmage. But when you're not sure, it drives me nuts when you uh, teams at the, uh, you know, inside the 10-yard line, the guy's giving four yards cushion in the end zone. Why the heck would you do that? 
I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, get up and challenge some people uh, every once in a while. And so it, it is. It's all about mindset. It's all about mentality. And uh, if you're a confident athlete, is an athlete that can play fast. And, uh, you know, that, that's what you're looking for. We were in the locker room talking to uh, quite a few of the players on Friday. I got excited just hearing Joe Mixon because he is bubbling with excitement with the opportunity to play in this scheme. He is. I think he, uh, you know, he led the AFC in rushing last year. You know, he's, uh, he's obviously coming off of, uh, off of that. Now, you know, Lindsey got injured with the Broncos. He was tracking. There's, there's always circumstances and everything. Bottom line is, though, he was number one in the, uh, in the AFC rushing the football. He missed two games himself. So he did it in a 14-game season. Pretty impressive. Um, you know, and, and I think he wants to build on that. And I think there, there's always a guy that, you know, some guys don't say a boo when they're leading and they lead by example. Other guys are emotional and vociferous. And, you know, they not only lead by example, but they lead by, um, you know, trying to elevate you from a verbal standpoint, whatever the case. And Joe's, Joe's that guy. I mean, Joe's the guy, when they're having their competitive periods of practice with Zach, Joe's like all oh, there's an offense and defensive guy that's, you know, getting after each other. Joe's always the offensive guy that's getting after the defense. So he's he's that, you know, he's that kind of guy. He's type A personality guy that way. But he backs it up and that's that's what you that's what you like to have. The thing that the thing that I love about Joe when I watch Joe, if they're up twenty or down twenty, if he makes a big play, he celebrates it. You know, and not not necessarily in a way to call attention to Joe. It's just like, yeah, you know, I did exactly what I was supposed to do. And he's he's an excitable football player. I, I like those kind of guys, you know. And uh, Joe's not a selfish player. I think Joe's just a, you know, he'll give credit to his offensive line. He'll give credit to his wide receivers, his full if, – if there is one, everybody tight ends, everybody blocking for him. But he just – he when, – when a play is executed the way it's supposed to be done, he celebrates it. And I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. Our summer vacation is over. Unbelievable. Here we go. First uh, first practice up in Dayton is celebrating the, the 100th year of the game. First game played up there in Dayton, the Dayton Triangles. <laughs> Beat the team from Columbus. A shutout, 14-zip. That was big back then, I guess. I'm sure it was. The Columbus team name, by the way, was the Panhandles. The gates at Welcome Stadium open at 1.30 on Saturday, and admission is free. Practice is scheduled to start at 2.30 and last for about an hour, followed by an autograph session. If you can't make it, NFL Network will air live coverage. The Bengals will hold their first practice in downtown Cincinnati on Sunday afternoon at 3. Now time for this week's Fun Facts segment as we get to know a new member of the coaching staff. He was John Gruden's quarterback's coach last year in Oakland after earning a Super Bowl ring with the Denver Broncos. Time for some fun facts with Bengals offensive coordinator Brian Callahan. The Bengals list your hometown as Champaign, Illinois, but as the son of a coach, I'm guessing you lived all over the place as a kid. Was that the case? Yeah, for the most part. I lived in, uh, I really got lucky. I went to high school in one place. So birthplace was Champaign, Illinois. My dad was at the University of Illinois. Um, but we moved to Arizona and moved to Carpendale and Madison, Wisconsin. I'd say Madison is kind of where my childhood was, kindergarten through fifth grade. Uh, and then we lived in South Jersey when I was in middle school. My dad was with the Eagles. And then I went to high school out in the Bay Area and my dad was with the Raiders. So I got through high school in one place. I was fortunate. It's not always the case for every coach's kid. So, uh, But, yeah, we moved around a little bit. You probably learned how to make friends quickly. I loved moving around. I, I think when you look back, um, 
and I'm actually kind of excited for my kids to have that experience. I've lived in most major geographical areas of the country. Uh, you get to meet a bunch of different types of people. Uh, it allows you to learn how to get along with people. It allows you to learn how to make friends. You don't know anybody. Um, I think it helped me as a, as a kid growing up to, to be a little more outgoing and uh, put myself out there and uh, learn how to make a friend or two when needed. We're doing fun facts with Brian Callahan. Your dad, Bill's the former head coach of the Oakland Raiders and the Nebraska Cornhuskers. He's currently the offensive line coach of the Washington Redskins. Were you allowed to go behind the scenes with his teams as a kid? Oh, yeah. That was the best part about being a coach's kid. If you love football, what a, what a great way to grow up. Uh, I, was in, I was in OTAs and training camps, and uh, I worked in the equipment room. I, I used to go to practice and throw, so I would be out there throwing individual drills as a high school kid. Uh, which was a great experience. I got to throw to some pretty good players in Oakland there for a couple of years. And, uh, yeah, I got to sit in meetings. So, oddly enough, I used to sit in John Gruden's quarterback meetings when I was 14 and 15 years old when he was still the head coach there. And uh, lo and behold, a bunch of years later, I get to go work for him. So, um, yeah, I got to see kind of all of it um, from meetings to dealing with the players and being at practice and being around. And I had to get an occasional reminder that whatever I heard in the field wasn't okay to bring back to the house. But, um, yeah, I got to see quite a bit for for a a young kid. I've been hanging around training camp since I was about 11 or 12. And who are some of the guys you were throwing to in Oakland? Tim Brown, Jerry Rice. um, I've heard of them. Those two guys, those pretty good players. Um, You know, then those were were obviously two that stand out. But then to get to be around a guy like Rich Gannon as a high school school Mm -hmm. athlete, to see him, and he was always great to me and answer questions and, I got a chance to pick his brain here and there. And, uh, you know, Jim Harbaugh was a quality control coach then. Uh, David Shaw was on that staff. A uh, bunch of really, really wow. good coaches. Uh, Mark Tressman, there's guys that have been around coaching this pro football for a long time and head coaches in college. So just to be able to grow up around that environment where there's uh, a bunch of guys at that point where they were young too that, you know, took an interest in me and, and helped me and, and answer questions when I had questions. So it was a great experience growing up. It kind of suits my current profession. <laughs> I'll say, in his first year as a head coach, your dad took the Raiders to the Super Bowl. Unfortunately, the game against Tampa Bay didn't turn out well, but what are your most vivid memories of that season and that Super Bowl appearance? Uh, ooh, quite a bit. I was, I was a freshman in college, so I, I had a chance. I was, I was into it. It was, very, it was important to me. It was, I was proud. I was, ha- I was excited for my dad. So uh, I remember a, um, remember a Pittsburgh game where they, they threw the ball. I don't know, like 60-some times and beat the Steelers because the Steelers' front was really good that year. Uh, they were hard to run the ball against. I just remember a bunch of Charlie Gardner highlights. Uh, I remember Tyrone Wheatley kind of smashing people down when they needed him to. Um, and then just – I just remember specifically just how great of a season Rich Gannon had that year. His NFL MVP, uh, his, his accuracy, his preparation. Uh, that was my first kind of exposure to what a elite preparer, uh, you know, how he approached the game. So those were some really fun moments. I think that AFC Championship game against the Titans, uh, when they kind of they, they they beat them once early in the year, they played an AFC Championship game. Oakland was rocking. It was an awesome environment. I'll never forget that. That was a that AFC Championship game was pretty special with the, that crowd there and the energy and electricity of the stadium and and to see them raise that AFC uh, the Lamar Hunt Trophy for the to go to the Super Bowl was a was a pretty cool moment for for me and my family. We're visiting with offensive coordinator Brian Callahan. Let's talk about your playing career a little bit. Yeah. As a high school player, you were part of the greatest winning streak in history. De La Salle High School won 151 consecutive games from 92 to 2004. You were there toward the tail end of the winning streak. Mm-hmm. Was there a lot of pressure on you and your teammates to extend the streak? 
Uh, you know, we never, we finally felt it, you know, looking back now. But back then, we didn't know any any different. We just we just knew we were really good, and we knew that we were going to, I think what the foundation of that program was, was pretty unique and special. Uh, Bob Laddister is an incredible uh, high school football coach and human being, and the way that he made that culture there, um, we never felt the pressure. There was never any pressure from them. Uh, any pressure that it usually came from the outside, we just wanted to go out uh, and play well and, and do our job right. And whatever our assignment was or whatever our goals or commitments for that week were, we wanted to meet those. And um, I think it's a really good lesson for a young, any young athlete. You start to learn that you know, all, the, all the end results don't really matter as much as the, as the process and the journey of getting to that point. So um, they did a really good job of kind of keeping a bunch of young high school kids focused uh, on, on, the, on the daily goals and the, and, the, and the doing things the right way all the time versus just assuming that we were just going to go win a game because we were good or because we've had the streak, we were going to go win. It was, it was a unique, it was a unique environment to, to start uh, my football career. I, still, I would say a lot of the things that I learned there, I still carry over into this level. And, you know, there's not a lot of secrets in football. So good teams usually good teams for a reason. Uh, and, and a lot of those things that we did there, I've kind of carried throughout my coaching career. It's a little bit of the foundation of, uh, of who I am as a football coach and a, at the time was a, as a player. You walked down to UCLA and served as a backup quarterback. When did you decide to pursue a career in coaching? Uh, after my after my so I walked on, uh, and I was a typical walk on. I, I was the fourth or fifth or sixth quarterback, and I'd run some scout team, and I enjoyed it, and I loved being a part of the team, and I loved competing, uh, and I wanted to, to try to do my best to try to. My goal was to go walk on and earn a scholarship, mainly to prove to myself that I could, uh, that I could find a way to do that. Um, but after my sophomore year, obviously, I realized that, you know, the NFL probably wasn't in my future. Uh, I was going to have to find another alternative to go earn a living, uh, which, you know, for anybody who plays football, is a, you get to 18, 19 years old, and all of a sudden you go, ah, a professional career might not be in, in, uh, in my future. So I started thinking of the options that, that were kind of in front of me, and I, I love football. I love being around it. Um, so it, it was the next logical choice, plus it was a chance to uh, be a graduate assistant at UCLA, get my grad degree at UCLA, and I figured if – I didn't love coaching after being a grad assistant. I'd have two degrees from UCLA, and I'd be okay. So I could find something I would like to do uh, with that. But I ended up loving it. I love being a graduate assistant. I love coaching. I loved all of it. Uh, so I, I pursued the coaching aspect. What was your first full-time coaching job, and what were the responsibilities? First full-time coaching job, I was the freshman offensive coordinator uh, at Unipro Serra High School in San Mateo, California, which is Tom Brady's alma mater. Mm-hmm. Um, good, good high school program, competitive Catholic league in the Bay Area. Um, but that was I was the freshman football coach, and uh, there, you're only you were only allowed 13 coaches on the staff at the time uh, in the league, so it kept them from having all kinds of coaches, and you had to have uh, X amount of them on campus. So I took a job as a full time teacher and uh, assistant football coach, and that was my first full time gig, and. I loved every second of it. Uh, to me, it actually is some of the most fun I've ever had coaching. Uh, was coaching high school kids. Uh, it's I wasn't ready at 23 years old to, to settle down for the next 40 years as a high school teacher and coach. It just wasn't it wasn't for me at that time. So I decided I wanted to keep pushing further. But um, that was my first full time job, and I loved every second of it. I still talk to a bunch of the kids uh, that I coach there. We're doing fun facts with Brian Callahan. As an NFL assistant coach, you were part of a Super Bowl winning staff with the Broncos in 2015. Turned out to be Peyton Manning's final game. Describe Peyton Manning. Boy, how much time you got? Um, <laughs> He, he was incredible. Uh, he was incredible to me. Uh, my role, uh, especially that year, had kind of morphed. Um, I was a little bit of a uh, – I'd kind of played the go-between between him and Coach Kubiak. 
because uh, I was one of the few guys that was still there that knew kind of everything about how he had done things previously. We were trying to transition the system a little bit at the time to what Gary had done for so long. Um, so we kind of had to marry these two systems together, and that kind of became my middle role there was with that. And um, the best part about being around him was the challenge. Every day was you had to be on, and he had, he'd have a 1,000 questions, and he'd ask you, and you had to be affirmative in your answers, and you had to know what you were talking about. And over the course of four years there, I kind of earned, earned his respect, I think, in that regard uh, for my preparation to help him. Um, and I think that when you get to the, when you deal with guys like that, uh, the challenge is the most fun. They, they keep you on your toes. There's, you know, he, there was never a, never a moment where I didn't feel like I had to be studying or on whatever it was we were preparing for. And it, and it pushed me and made me a much better, uh, a much better coach and a much better football mind because of the, the ways he, he kind of stimulated and made me think about things. Um, and, and then just getting the overall picture of what the quarterback position is supposed to look like how to go about your daily business, how to manage, how to be in the locker room, uh, how he went about preparing, how he practiced, uh, the intensity at which he practiced in, and in meetings at 18 years into the league, that every day was like a new day, like he had never heard the information before. It was really, really impressive, and, and I'm very grateful to have been around that and to him to allow me to be a part of that uh, journey for four years in Denver. It was, it was really, uh, it was very challenging, and it was a lot of fun. Where's your Super Bowl ring, and when do you show it off? A Super Bowl ring is uh, in a safe. Um, it is here in Cincinnati, but it's in a safe, and um, I show it off. You know, I've never actually worn it. To be totally, mm. I've never, I've never worn it anywhere except to the ring ceremony in Denver. That that's at the end of that year. Um, I show it occasionally, and people kind of ask about it. Uh, I don't take it out too often, um, but it is. A, I assume at some point later in my life I will, but. It's really big and gaudy, and it, it's it's almost over the top. I just I don't know when to wear it. I don't know, you know. There's probably events at some point, and some reunion someday I'll wear it too. But uh, they're really not meant to be worn anymore. No, they're 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 so big that they they're they're more of a, a presentation piece than they are. And I have a replica of the Super Bowl trophy that sits in that's in my house, and that tends to kind of quell most of the uh, curiosity about it. And every now and again, someone like, hey, you have your ring, and if I have it there, I'll, I'll be happy to show it. You're off the hot seat. I appreciate the time. Best of luck this year. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's podcast. If you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. And if you have a minute, please give it a rating or leave a comment. Your feedback's been helpful, and those five-star ratings help more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.